The New York Times, yeah. this past Sunday, there was an article about the first black punk rock group called Death in the 70s, and they found these old recordings. I was just trying to, I was trying to create an idea of how to expand rock. My name is Henry Rollins. Henry, I think I know you. Oh, I see. You're a character now. I, well, I just do whatever I feel. You are gonna make me scream like a white lady. <laughs> Woo! Shut up. Hello, and welcome to another thrilling, exciting, dare I say, life-altering episode of Deep Tracks in Rock History. I am your salubrious host, Doug. Excelsior! McCullough. Now, uh, most of you might remember, uh, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, um, the, the plot device to bring together all the heroes into one team. So, you know, we had initially we had the, the movies of each of them sort of individually, Captain America, Thor, Iron Man, Hulk, you know, with appearances with, with Hawkeye and Black Widow and them. But, but there was kind of the single plot device to bring all of them together into one team. And that plot device was none other than the hard-boiled spy master, Nick Fury. And, you know, we get our first taste of Nick Fury at the end of the first Iron Man movie with the post credit scene in which Nick Fury says to Tony Stark, I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger initiative. So early rock sort of had its own Nick Fury, a guy who was instrumental in pulling together many of rock's founders to do live shows, national tours, and even star in feature films. Uh, you know, otherwise, uh, I think of it as the Rockers initiative. Uh, and this Nick Fury's name was Alan Freed. I'm here to talk to you about the Rockers. Before I move on, I want to address the elephant in the room. Uh, some of you may have noticed that this episode, once again, is longer than my usual episodes. You know, I generally try to keep these episodes around like half an hour long, maybe 40 minutes tops. And and this one is uh, probably going to come out to be about an hour. Um, so I'm, I'm going to do kind of like what I did with my Little Richard episodes, which were a bit longer than the, the usual episodes as well. I'll have a little intermission music in the middle of it. It's going to be amazing. But also, I, I don't I don't want to have two episodes on Alan Freed. I really just want to get him done in one episode. So it's it's gonna be kind of a long one. Um, but uh, it's it's all good stuff, important stuff. So bear with me, and and hopefully it it doesn't feel like an hour. <laughs> now Alan Freed's name has come up a few times throughout this podcast. It's it's a name that unless you grew up in that era or are a rock history aficionado, you probably haven't heard of it. But despite not being a professional musician himself, Alan Freed was one of the most crucial figures in early rock history. He was an American disc jockey who helped popularize this fledgling new music and is even credited as being the one to name it. He put on the first ever rock concert. He orchestrated the first ever rock themed movie. He would be early rock's most powerful and ardent defender, which would also make him one of its first casualties as the music came under heavier and heavier scrutiny from parents first and then eventually even the United States government. But first, before we dive into the story, let's do a quick review. And uh, since reviews can get a little dry, I'm going to play some fancy swaggy background music while I do it. All right, here we go. In season one, episode six, I did a whole episode dedicated to the birth and rise of DJs entitled, Dear Mr. DJ, Play It Again. In that episode, we saw how DJs came to fill the role of song pluggers for the recording industry, and as such, gained an enormous amount of power in which they also became, in essence, the gatekeepers and tastemakers of popular music. We revisited this powerful role of DJs in episode two of this season, entitled Sex and Charts and Rock and Roll, 
You might remember in that episode how I mentioned the practice of buying airtime with DJs through an industry-accepted form of bribery called payola. Payola. I also want to make sure you all recall episode one of this episode in which we talked about the birth of the American teenager and the rise of the teen market. This teen market would drive the recording industry at the same time that fears over teen delinquency would become you know, one of the major battlegrounds in the culture wars of the 1950s. And you might remember specifically, we looked at three movies released in the early 50s that functioned as expressions of these fears while, you know, simultaneously being accused of contributing to the delinquency that, you know, everyone was so afraid of. And of course, these films were The Wild One, Rebel Without a Cause, and the infamous Blackboard Jungle, which has the honor of being the first movie to feature a rock song when it used rock around the clock in its soundtrack. Fancy, swaggy. Thus far, since the emergence of electric blues and rhythm and blues through places like Chicago and Memphis, as well as through record companies like Chess and Atlantic, and yes, I'm well aware we haven't talked about Atlantic Records yet or Amit Erdogan, um, but don't worry, that'll that'll happen eventually. Um, but but through those things, we saw rock music get its start as an underground phenomenon, as rhythm and blues artists began playing louder, like with Elmore James. Uh, with Distortion, like in Rocket 88, or with Rosetta Tharp, at Faster Tempi, which is the correct plural for tempos, you heathens, or incorporating the backbeat, like with Little Richard's drummer Earl Palmer. Like any other massively successful grassroots movement, rock music wouldn't stay underground for long, though. One of the ways the music would initially come to the attention of white audiences was through, for them at the time, more acceptable avatars, such as, you know, white country-turned-rock artists like Bill Haley, who first fed it to them as a sort of a, a sped-up, bluesy version of country-western. Western. But you also saw rhythm and blues songs begin to cross over onto mainstream pop charts as white artists covered the music written or first performed by black artists, like Pat Boone's covers of Ain't That a Shame and Tutti Frutti. Tutti Frutti. But then those black artists began to cross over as well themselves. You know, Fast Domino would be one of the first to do this, uh, followed closely by Little Richard and Chuck Berry. Now, without a single focused epicenter, the music was something that was kind of springing up all over the place like weeds. You had Fats Domino in New Orleans, Chuck Berry in Chicago, Little Richard in Georgia, Bill Haley in Pennsylvania, and you had independent record labels aggressively pushing theirs and other artists' music into the hands of regional DJs who would either play their music during the day, if they were a dedicated rhythm and blues station, or at night when some mainstream stations switched platforms from pop to R&B. These DJs were people like Gene Nobles in Nashville, Zenith Sears in Atlanta, um, Dewey Phillips in Memphis, and then of course the man we'll be focusing on in this episode, Alan Freed. So, okay, enough ground clearing and foundation laying. Let's talk about Alan. Alan! So, uh, Alan Freed was born a human. <laughs> you thought I would start with the cliche birth year and birthplace and such. You didn't think I'd start with his species, did you? Well, now that we've established that, we can go ahead and discuss his birth year and birthplace and such. Alan Freed was born on December 15th, 1921 in Windber, Pennsylvania, to a Welsh-American mother, Maud Palmer, and a Russian-Jewish immigrant father, Charles S. Freed. So that made him four years older than Bill Haley, five years older than Chuck Berry, seven years older than Fats Domino, 11 years older than Little Richard, and... 57 years older than me, in case anyone cares. 
1933, the Freed family moved from, um, or they moved to Salem, Ohio, which is where Alan graduated from high school in 1940. Uh, while he was in high school, he actually formed a band called the Sultans of Swing. And in this band, he played trombone. His, his ambition during his younger years was, was actually to be a band leader, you know, basically like Glenn Miller, right? A trombonist uh, slash big band leader. Um, he attended Ohio State University, and that's where he first became interested in radio. He served in the U.S. Army during World War II and worked as a DJ on the Armed Force Radio. And then after returning home from the war, he, you know, he kind of bounced around between various radio stations in Pennsylvania and Ohio. But it was in 1945 that he landed a gig as a DJ at WAKR in Akron, Ohio, and became sort of a local favorite among listeners playing jazz and pop music. It was around this time that he met Leo Mintz. Now, Leo Mintz is an important name in early rock history. You have to remember this name. He owned a record store in Cleveland called Record Rendezvous. It was one of Cleveland's biggest record stores, and amongst his wares were rhythm and blues records. When Mintz met Alan, he told him that this rhythm and blues stuff was, you know, selling like hotcakes and that Alan should try playing it on the air. Now, Alan actually didn't initially really act on it at that time in any meaningful way. But as we'll soon see, Mintz's advice would come back to him a few years later. And then, of course, we'll get to that in a moment. Despite his popularity among uh, local listenership, Freed's time at WAKR was not without its drama. And this is kind of important to understanding his personality. This is where I'm going to quote from a 1990 article in the Akron Beacon Journal. Alan Freed, the pioneering rock jock, was referred to in a 1957 Beacon Journal profile as a tireless, nervous, gum-chewing sort. Not a pretty picture, especially in those days when tirelessness was generally equated with godlessness. People who knew him didn't have particularly fond memories either. Freed, a WAKR disc jockey from 1945 to 1950, was temporarily fired in 1948 for flagrant violation of studio rules according to another Beacon Journal story. Then the article quotes Ohio broadcaster Roger Burke Sr., who was in his mid-20s at the time and, and also working at WAKR, mentioning that Burke doesn't remember what exactly happened in that 1948 kerfuffle, but said of Freed, he was flaky. He probably didn't show up for two or three nights or two weeks. Now, I, I love that leap in, in Burke's timeline at the end. You know, he didn't show up for a couple days or two weeks. Maybe even years. This captures a few things about Freed. Um, he was definitely one of the OG stick it to the man sorts, which partially explains the tirelessness description. He also tended to bother people um, because of his big personality and, according to some people who knew him, even bigger ego. But something else that's important to note here, Freed was known in his later years to have struggled with alcoholism, though evidence suggests that it could have started as far back as his days in Akron, which if true, could explain these random no-shows and flakiness. Uh, whatever the reason, though, as, as Burke also pointed out, Freed's audience appeal was unmistakable. He was very popular and had a great personality. This audience appeal was the reason Freed could come back on at WAKR even after his firing in 1948. But his rehiring wouldn't be without his caveat. He had to sign a non-compete clause. This clause specified that Freed couldn't work at any station within a 75-mile radius of Akron for a full year. Nevertheless, Freed left WAKR in 1950, moved to Cleveland, and with the help of RCA's Northern Ohio distributor, William Shipley, was eventually able to wriggle out of the non-compete and land a midnight program at WJW. Uh, among the sponsors for this midnight program was Record Rendezvous. 
Leo Mintz was still singing the same tune a few years before, telling Alan how much he noticed young white teens flocking to his record shop to buy this black music. In 1951, Mintz stepped things up a notch and purchased airtime on the radio that was devoted completely to R&B recordings, and he used Freed as his host. Thus, on July 11, 1951, the show The Moondog House was born. Freed called himself the King of the Moondoggers. Hail to the King, baby. There are a couple of legends uh, about where he got the name Moondog. Many people think that he got the name Moondog from the New York street musician Louis T. Hardin, who also used the name Moondog. But this actually likely isn't it. In fact, as we'll see later in this episode, crossing paths with Hardin is what would force Alan Freed to stop using the name Moondog because Hardin sued him for copyright infringement. But that whole kerfuffle wouldn't happen until Freed moved to New York, which hasn't even happened yet in this story. The other legend is that Alan Freed got the name Moondog from Todd Rhodes' song Blues for a Moondog, which supposedly was the first song that Freed played in that very first Moondog House show. But like I said, we'll be revisiting the Moondog name story later on. Before we move on, though, I, I should make the point here that Freed was not the first white DJ to play rhythm and blues on the air. That honor is usually ascribed to Dewey Phillips with his Red Hot and Blue show that started airing in November of 1949 down in Memphis. But as I recently learned, that honor might actually belong to James Reeves, also known as Shorty the Bailiff, up in Chester, Pennsylvania, with his show Judge Rhythm's Court which began airing six months earlier in May of 1949. Um, now, whoever the first, my, my point is there had been a handful of DJs already giving rhythm and blues airtime for several years before Alan Freed came into the game. However, none of them would have the same level of impact or reach as we will see him eventually have. Also, as I mentioned before, Freed did not invent the term rock and roll. You may remember it's a euphemism for sex that sprang up from hokum blues. Nevertheless, uh, Freed repurposed the term as a description for the music he was playing, and then eventually it evolved from an adjective to a noun, but more on that later as well. Freed brought a lot of energy and personality to his show, like more than most DJs who usually you know, broadcast with a more subdued tone and demeanor. Freed would sing along with the music, ring a little cowbell, and pound the rhythm on a phone book. He was also able to create a, a tight-knit fan base among his listeners, they weren't just people who happened to listen to the same radio show, as you know, maybe was the case with most other radio shows. But the people who listened to the Moondog House show were a community. Within a year and a half, his radio show was the most popular one in Cleveland. WJW was broadcasting rhythm and blues to a larger audience than any other station or DJ before. Soon, between Alan Freed's show and Mince's record store, Cleveland was becoming the epicenter of this new rock and roll music. Now, you might be thinking, hmm, I wonder if that's why the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is located in Cleveland. Um, that's part of the reason. There's, there's actually another reason, though. Uh, when the city of Cleveland petitioned the, the Hall of Fame committee in 1986 to be its home, there was one more major historic event that they were able to cite as a reason why the Hall of Fame should be built there. On March 21st, 1952, at the Cleveland Arena, Freed organized a five-act show called the Moondog Coronation Ball. This, my friends, would go down in history as the first major rock and roll concert. The headlining acts on the posters for the show were Paul Hucklebuck Williams and his Hucklebuckers, uh, Tiny Grimes and the Rockin' Highlanders, the Dominoes, who many of you might have heard of, 
um, Danny Cobb and Veretta Dillard, plus many others. Every one of those artists I just listed there were black rhythm and blues artists. Advanced tickets were a buck fifty, and tickets at the door were a dollar seventy-five. Now the the venue had room for eight thousand, according to a couple of sources that I read, or ten thousand, according to a couple other sources that I read. Either way, it was a number that many people were concerned they wouldn't be able to fill. In fact, Freed himself had expressed concern over selling enough tickets to cover their expenses incurred from renting such a large venue. So imagine their surprise when twenty thousand people showed up to see the show. That's a lot of people. Journalist Valena Williams, who was in attendance, said, I thought the acoustics were poor because I couldn't hear the music. But then I realized that the din was drowning out the orchestra. I looked back at the dance floor, and more than three quarters of it was filled so tightly that you couldn't see anything of the floor itself. Now that kind of like sort of packed environment um, we might be used to today in a in, in a world where moshing exists, but... Uh, at that time, that was that was pretty wild, especially at a concert where it was intended to be for for dancing. Like that was that was kind of the point. It was a ball, right? But obviously, no dancing could take place because people could barely breathe. Anyway, the the show got about one song in from the opening act, which was Paul Williams and his Hucklebuckers, before there was chatter from fire authorities about shutting it down. But that wasn't at the end of it. No, uh, my friends, you see, the first rock concert would also be the first rock concert riot or at least what almost turned into a riot. The venue tried to fit in as many people as they could, even beyond the hall's capacity. But then they had to start turning people away. However, here's the rub. Many of the people being turned away claimed to be ticket holders, like they had bought the tickets in advance. And so and understandably, they're confused. Like, I bought these tickets already. How are you saying the show is sold out or there's no more room in there? Like, I, I bought these tickets two weeks ago, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, now, in fact, the issue of... The, the venue being allegedly oversold would actually become a sticking point between the show's organizers and municipal authorities. But I will point out right now that there are some accounts that say that part of this um, was, you know, the, the, the show being oversold was due to a large number of counterfeit tickets being circulated. I've also read that there was a printing error that likewise could have contributed to the overabundance of tickets floating around. Freed would insist, however, that the kerfuffle was because of people who were not ticket holders. Either way, imagine a giant mob of people who've either paid good money or have traveled really far, only to find out the show they're super excited to see is sold out. Add in some alcohol and teenage hormones, and you've essentially got a powder keg. According to a March 1952 article in the Cleveland Plain Dealer, at about 9.30, the crowd stormed the arena, knocking down four panel doors, brushing police away, and storming inside. Some two hours and 30 policemen later, Cleveland Police Captain William Zimmerman asked the crowd to leave. Police stood by as they slowly and reluctantly filed out. And this is where I'll read a rather lengthy excerpt from the book by John A. Jackson entitled Big Beat Heat, Alan Freed and the Early Years of Rock. As the crowd outside the arena swelled to frightful proportions, those nearest the building realized the entrance doors had been closed. Order began to break down, and at 9.30 p.m., the lid blew off as the mob of more than 6,000 frustrated yet determined youths assaulted the arena in a human wave. They knocked down four panel doors, swept past the astonished undermanned police, and noisily swarmed inside as ticket takers and ushers scattered for their lives. I can still see the crowd below us, recalled Peter Hastings, who was in the arena that night to photograph the dance. It was getting bigger all the time. I took the picture, then we got out of there as fast as we could. It was frightening. 
The arena was soon filled to its 10,000 capacity, but still the crowd grew larger. Bill Lemon, executive vice president of WJW Radio, was flabbergasted by what he saw. People without tickets broke down doors. I saw knives flashing. We were up in the press box and we couldn't get out for three hours. It was madness. By 11.30, the fire department and the police gave up trying to restore order in the overcrowded, supercharged arena. The house lights were turned up, police captain William Zimmerman called off the dance, and the police stood by as the now-subdued crowd slowly and reluctantly filed out. You can tell that book sourced some of the same news articles that I did. What's interesting is, in 1999, there was a made-for-TV movie about the life of Alan Freed called Mr. Rock and Roll, the Alan Freed story. And in that movie, at the point in Freed's story where they had the coronation ball, there's no portrayal or mention of the near riot. It just showed the concert, like, functioning perfectly fine and then moved on. Like, it's it's kind of weird that Hollywood would pass up sh- such drama. And even with the concert, it only showed the performance of the Dominoes, who, considering the first two acts were Hucklebucker and Tiny Grimes, were very likely performing amidst the mass chaos of the later evening if they were even able to perform at all. Now, in the movie's defense, it does make mention of the audience numbers, you know, 20,000 people trying to fit into a space made for eight to 10,000. Also, in the movie's defense, it starred Judd Nelson, who doesn't look, sound, or act anything like Alan Freed. But there were definitely moments in which he kind of channeled his John Bender vibes from his Breakfast Club days. Eat my shorts. And John Bender is a great metaphor for Alan Freed, who, as I mentioned earlier, was a similar stick-it-to-the-man sort of personality. So it's forgivable. Despite contritely going on the air the next day to apologize to fans for the aborted show and to authorities for the near riot, Alan Freed gained a lot of notoriety from this incident, both good and bad. It was good in that his listeners seemed to rally around him even more as he demonstrated sincere sorrow with a vow to put on more shows and meet what was obviously a much bigger demand than anyone had anticipated. It was bad in that this confirmed in many people's minds that this rhythm and blues music was nothing but trouble, especially for those people who saw black music as the antithesis to proper behavior and Christian American norms. Basically, this reinforced a lot of stereotypes. The city's afternoon paper, the Cleveland Press, described the arena crowd as a crushing mob of 25,000 hepcats jamming every inch of the floor. Now, obviously, the number was slightly exaggerated, but it's more important to note that they refer to the concert goers as hepcats. Now, of course, as most people know, hepcats is a term that originated as a reference to jazz enthusiasts, but in many white circles at, at this time we're talking about, it was a term that connoted young African Americans and not always in a positive light. Like, imagine maybe a news article today that would describe a crowd of young, you know, BIPOC people as thugs. And you kind of get an idea of what the tone was that this article was trying to strike. You know, to, to, to drum up drama, they were not only exaggerating numbers, but kind of dog-whistling racial tensions. I mentioned a moment ago that Freed gained notoriety from this event. This is where I'll once again quote from Jackson's book, Big Beat Heat. The attention aimed at Freed following the aborted Moondog Coronation Ball came from three sources, each revealing what it thought of the near riot at the Cleveland Arena. The city's white municipal authorities held Freed responsible for amassing the disorderly mob. They threatened to charge Freed and his two white partners with overselling the arena by printing and selling too many tickets. 
Freed maintained that about 9,000 tickets were sold in advance, arguing that, and I love this flippant response from Freed, everybody had such a grand time breaking into the arena that they didn't ask for their money back. Bill Lemon, Freed's boss at WJW, backed him up, insisting that the show was not oversold, declaring that it was those who didn't have tickets that caused the problem. Jackson points out that the overselling charges went unsubstantiated, but then goes on to argue that those charges were an indication of the trepidation experienced by the city authorities when confronted by Freed's unruly black Cleveland arena gathering. Essentially, Jackson is saying that the city's white authorities were feeling uncomfortable with such a large gathering of a predominantly black crowd. But then Jackson goes on to discuss the second of those three aforementioned sources of attention now landing on Freed. Criticism from the city's black community came via Valena Minor Williams, woman's editor for the black newspaper The Cleveland Call and Post, who wrote, The shame of the situation lies not in the frustrated crowd that rushed the arena, but in a community which allows a program like this to continue and to exploit the Negro teensters. And a, a quick side note, even decades later when NPR did a story commemorating the event's 50th anniversary, Valena's statement for their interview that they did for that story was, It's a wonder no one was killed. So <laughs> her frustration with the event obviously never cooled. And Jackson also quotes Marty Richardson, a reporter for the Colin Post, who describes Freed's selection of black artists and their music as a lowbrow, cheap entertainment, frequently obscene. Now, this might seem surprising to many of us today. After all, you know, this is still in the era of segregation, the organization of an event celebrating black music and promoting desegregation. I mean, it's, you know, mostly black people in the audience, but there was a mixture of white people as well. But anyway, um, you know, an organization celebrating black music, promoting desegregation, you know, it seemed to be something that would, would have been smiled upon in the black community at that time. However, uh, Jackson points out something important. Derogatory treatment of rhythm and blues music by the black press was not unusual during this period. The Colin Post, successor to the black Cleveland advocate, began publication in the late 1920s and was much more insistent than his predecessor in protesting the city's racial segregation in restaurants, theaters, and other public accommodations. Yet it, as well as other black publications, quote, did not make a fetish of integration. It's always tricky doing a quote within a quote on a podcast. Anyway, um, now we already saw with the stories of people like Rosetta Tharp and Little Richard that there was pushback from the black churches against rhythm and blues, which was seen as sinful music because of its association with nightclubs and so forth. But even outside of the religious lens, um, many within the black community looked at those rhythm and blues artists and events like the Coronation Ball and thought that they were just playing into the worst stereotypes that white people had of black people. Jackson echoed this in his book as well when he said, The underlying cause of the black press's criticism of rhythm and blues music most likely was black upper and middle class sensitivity to being subjected to yet another stereotype by whites. Numerous rhythm and blues songs, many written by whites, portrayed blacks as fun-loving, shiftless people who devoted most of their energy to gambling, excessive drinking, and sexual promiscuity. So at best, rhythm and blues artists were seen much like the proverbial embarrassing drunk uncle who ruins your wedding. And at worst, an outright obstacle to getting the respect necessary to pave a road towards integration and civil rights. Plus, on top of all of that, you can hear the skepticism that Williams felt towards a concert featuring black artists that was organized by white men, that they were being exploited. She and others like her thought Freed and Mintz and, and all the others were just trying to make easy money off of black music and black culture. You know, she didn't realize that Freed, like his listeners, had become a true fan of the music. And finally, the third source of attention now on Freed that Jackson talks about was the national media. 
quoting once again from Jackson, that national media, which had virtually ignored Freed, was forced to take notice of the DJ, his black legions, and the power of rhythm and blues music after Billboard, Cashbox, and the broadcast media reported Moondog's aborted dance. Freed was also being hailed in the music trade papers as Cleveland's well-known R&B jock. It was certainly not coincidental, moreover, that on the Monday following Freed's terminated arena dance and front-page headlines, WJW Radio increased Moondog's weekly airtime by six hours. So that was Alan Freed's power right there, his listeners. He spoke directly to his audience. He didn't dictate to them from a you know elevated dais, but portrayed himself as one of them, mingling among them and asking them for their input and their contribution. This is Alan Freed speaking. And friends, I want to have a little talk with you before we begin our regular Moondog show tonight about the horrible disappointment of many thousands of folks who tried to attend our coronation ball at the Cleveland Arena last night. I know that most of you who've been my friends here on the Moondog Show for the past six or seven months have known that after today I've been subject to much abuse and blame in print and out of print for the way the Moondog Coronation Ball turned out last night. I'd like to have you do this for me tonight when you call in your request to our Moondog Show on this Saturday night. I would like to have you tell Dean on the telephone when you call in that you are with the Moondog because if enough of you can show faith tonight through your telephone calls, through your telegrams, through your cards and letters over the weekend to tell us that you're sticking with the Moondog through thick and thin, even though, as I understand, they're going to arrest me for overloading the arena last night, I'm, I'm, I, I will tell you that it'll be worth your while because I will see that everything definitely is made all right again. Well, well, I'm going to lose your way by Tatty Crime Truck and Highlanders the record rendezvous, Moondockers. God bless you. Thank you so much for your wonderful telephone calls and your telegrams. We're with you, too, and I want you to tell us tonight that you're with us. So whatever you do, call us and send us a telegram and tell us that you're with the Moondog because we've got the great news. WJW's management has announced tonight that because of all the wonderful Moondoggers who turned out last night and were disappointed that we're going to bring you more and more airtime of the Moondog show beginning on Monday. So you see, Moondoggers, it all goes to show you that you can't push people around. We want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts, and we want to promise you continued great, uh, great entertainment and the best that we possibly can do from now on. So, Moondoggers, thank you so much. Keep your telephone calls coming and your telegrams because we, are, we love you all and we want you to know that we've had a very, very blue night and a very blue day today. And we want, we want to tell you... You know, everyone felt like they were part of the Moondog show. Like I said, he created a community. And now time for our intermission. Intermission. Oh. And now back to our show. The Moondoggers, however... Uh, had a scare in 1953 when Freed was driving home from work, which was about a five-mile drive, and he fell asleep at the wheel. Once again, borrowing from Big Beat Heat, his automobile careened headlong into a tree somewhere along Kinsman Road. Because the accident occurred near a police station, the local police heard the crash. They found Freed unconscious and battered in the twisted wreckage. An adrenaline ejection was frantically administered when his heartbeat ceased. Freed was seriously injured with a punctured lung and damage to both his spleen and liver. The skin on his face had been peeled away. The doctors had to replace it and sew it back across the top of Freed's forehead. In all, it took some 260 stitches and extensive plastic surgery to get Freed's face back to a semblance of humanity. The doctors all told him that he was lucky to survive. But 
survive he did, though the crash would not be without its consequences. The doctors told him that they didn't expect him to live for more than another 10 years or so. And according to his daughter, Alana Freed, the doctors also told him that he could never in his life take another drink. Now, Freed may not have been a full-blown alcoholic by this time in his life yet, um, but as I pointed out earlier, evidence suggests that he had been developing a heavy dependence on alcohol ever since his Akron days. And it had only grown worse since his time in Cleveland. To make matters worse, other Cleveland DJs were beginning to horn in on the rhythm and blues action presenting possible competition to Freed. Thus, he was you know, barely out of the hospital when he, he kind of frantically launched a six-week tour package called Biggest Show of 53, starring Ruth Brown, Billy Eckstein, and Count Basie. It was a huge success and led to another star-studded tour later that same year entitled The Biggest Rhythm and Blues Show. <laughs> I just love these names. Um, it starred Ruth Brown again, as well as Winoni Harris, The Clovers, former prize-fighting champ Joe Lewis and his band, the Lester Young Combo, and Buddy Johnson's Orchestra. It opened in Revere, Massachusetts on July 9th and then ended a month later down in New Orleans. More shows were organized, um, sometimes with the same artists and sometimes with new faces. In fact, Fats Domino would be featured in one of his shows in August of 1953. But no matter what, though, they were always packed. This is also about the time that Freed would begin to integrate himself even more so into the music industry. Um, he began managing a rhythm and blues group called the Moon Glows, originally called the Crazy Sounds, but then forced to change their name once he took over as their manager. He was really leaning into the moon theme. Uh, and then this is actually followed soon by an, another group he took on to manage uh, called the Coronets. It was also around this time that Freed, along with Ohio music promoter and talent scout Lou Platt, who, along with Leo Mintz, had helped organize the Coronation Ball and, and other Freed events, uh, started a record company called Champagne Records. I'm surprised it's not called, like, Moon Juice Records or I don't know, whatever. This is important to our story, though, not only in this episode, but even more so a few episodes from now when we wrap up Freed's story. You see, think about it. If Freed manages a music group that releases its records through a record company he owns, he's going to be very, very motivated to play their stuff on his radio show as much as possible. He would certainly be more motivated to play their stuff than the stuff, you know, put out by other artists not managed by him or not releasing their stuff through Champagne Records. A conflict of interest arises when what is in a person's best interest is not in the best interest of another person or organization to which that individual owes loyalty. So you can see the conflict of interest brewing here, right? To make things worse, Freed used the pseudonym Al Lance to add himself as one of the songwriters for the Moon Glow's two hit songs that were actively being promoted by Champagne Records and on the Moondog House Show. So now he's making money as a manager record producer, and songwriter, in addition to being a disc jockey. And remember, disc jockeys wield the power at this time of who gets airtime and who doesn't. So again, the conflict of interest is getting higher and deeper. But that's not the end of it. Freed also at this time entered the record distributing business. So the way this worked was major record labels had the resources to market and distribute their own records, but independent labels did not and they often had to outsource this sort of thing to distributors. Most of Freed's music that he played on the air came from independent record labels. So, if he has ownership of the mechanism distributing the very records he's promoting and playing on the air, conflict of interest getting thicker, losing objectivity. 
Now, in Freed's defense, he wasn't the only one in the music biz who would do this sort of thing. As, as we'll see, actually, when we cover Dick Clark later on, he would also do a lot of the same sort of integrating. But as we'll also eventually see, while both men got in trouble for doing this, Dick Clark would receive a slap on the wrist, while Alan Freed would get something more like a punch in the gut. But again, that was also in, in large part due to the two men's personalities. Dick Clark was very much, um, very contrite when he got in trouble and was like, oh, okay, I'm sorry, you know, whatever you want me to do. Whereas Alan Freed was, uh, well, we'll see. He had a very different reaction than Dick Clark. Um, but for now, despite intricately weaving himself into every facet and vertical of the music business, Alan Freed wasn't just promoting himself. All of the artists invited to perform in his numerous shows throughout 1953 were seeing their own careers blow up. So this is where I'm going to quote Jackson again. The Drifters and Clyde McFadder could not foresee it, but their careers and the careers of rhythm and blues veterans, Fast Domino, Joe Turner, and Ruth Brown, among others, were about to soar as each crossed over to the white pop charts. In 1953, rhythm and blues recordings became pop hits, notably Ruth Brown's Mama He Treats Your Daughter Mean, Fast Domino's Go Into the River, The Orioles' Crying in the Chapel, Faye Adams' Shake a Hand, and The Four Tunes' Marie. So by the end of 1953, Alan Freed was um, even being heard on Metropolitan New York Area Radio as WNJR, based out of Newark, New Jersey, began playing pre-recorded tapes of Freed's shows in order to supplement their own programming. They paid sort of a pittance for use of his material, which you know evoked a stern harumph from Freed's studio manager in Cleveland. But as Jackson put it, the fee was of little concern to Freed. His attitude was, the hell with the money, I'm being heard in the New York area. This led to Freed deciding to put on one of his famous slash infamous rhythm and blues shows in Newark, where he would, uh, you know, he could capitalize on his newly acquired New York area audience. On the roster for this show were the New York-based Harptones, the DC-based Clovers, as well as Muddy Waters, crooner Charles Brown, Nolan Lewis, Arnett Cobb, uh, Sam Butera, and Buddy Johnson's orchestra again. The turnout was just as big as anywhere else, and more importantly to Freed, it also clinched the next step in the Moondogs' rise to fame. In 1954, Freed moved his show to WINS in New York City. It, it, now, it wasn't unusual for DJs to move from one city to another, but Freed's move was newsworthy because it involved the largest sum of money ever paid to a rhythm and blues disc jockey. The crazy thing is, despite all of that, Alan Freed arrived in New York with no money. <laughs> he borrowed $200 from his old station manager back at WJW in Cleveland, but it was gone by the time he got to New York. <laughs> um, WINS, his new employer, had to not only fund his move, but also help him find a Manhattan apartment. So this, this sort of cavalier attitude worked well for Freed back in Cleveland, but there wasn't much of a thriving rhythm and blues scene in New York yet, like what you saw in the Midwest and the South. As musicologist Arnold Shaw put it, New York City was definitely not an R&B town. And what rhythm and blues scene did exist there was very fragmented among smaller, more localized, usually black disc jockeys. It was one thing, you know, to bring all those listening fans together to a big concert in Newark. But it was another thing entirely to get them to switch from their favorite local programming to tune into some white guy from out of state. So Freed didn't realize it, but he had his work cut out for him. Now, ironically, one of the biggest issues to arise with Freed's arrival was a debate among new listeners over his race. 
Quoting once again from Jackson, During Freed's early days in New York, Freed's engineer John McCarthy said he received calls from confused listeners trying to settle arguments as to whether Freed was white or black. Often a caller, certain that Freed was black, would pause in stunned silence after learning that he was white. His fellow radio personalities at WINS shunned him almost unanimously, thinking that he would last, you know, like three months on the long end, with some even predicting he wouldn't last a week. In particular, some of those fellow white DJs weren't thrilled that they were having to share programming with, with, with what was traditionally black music, while others were just weirded out by a white guy being so enamored with black music. Others didn't like Freed's energy that he brought to his show, you know, thinking that it was too over the top. And there's even black listeners and or black DJs that were initially put off by him because of his, quote, ostentatious style. But eventually, uh, Freed began to win people over. I'll take a dip once more in Jackson's book. Most black teenagers who originally opposed Freed eventually got caught up in his excitement and boundless energy and finally accepted him because he played the records they wanted to hear. Jackson also cites singer Jim McGowan's belief that Freed was able to overcome objections to him because the DJ came across with a force that was just too powerful. He just swept everything else aside. However, even as he won his fans over, Freed would begin to face more obstacles from outside his listenership. As more and more rhythm and blues songs were being banned on various networks because of their association with sexuality and double entendre, Freed would find himself facing more and more resistance to and criticism of his music that he played on the air. Um, this is where I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Boston-based disc jockey Joe Smith, who was more or less a contemporary of Freed's, uh, said of his early days when he first started playing rock music on the air up in New England, Rock and roll was consistently ridiculed. You can't believe the paranoia around it. We're talking the 1950s and Eisenhower. Conservative America had grown up with the big bands and Sinatra and Bing Crosby, and now we're giving them Little Richard, Fats Domino, and Elvis Presley? I took heat from sponsors, from the radio station, from the police. I took heat from parent-teacher organizations. Then Smith goes on to talk about the heavy influence of the Catholic Church in Boston and his fruitless efforts to appease church authorities and parishioners alike. And the church was so powerful. I always wanted them on my side, and that's why I made sure that at least once a week I did a hop for them. I needed the church because the police were always on my case. They claimed I caused trouble wherever I went. Kids couldn't get in, riots outside. Then the big headline. Venereal disease on upswing. Police chief blames Elvis Presley and rock and roll disc jockey Joe Smith. Now, we obviously haven't covered Elvis yet, but Joe Smith's recollection of his experience perfectly captures the same thing that Freed was dealing with. Just about any negative effects related to morality or teen delinquency or, or even apparently teen pregnancy was thrown uh, at the feet of rock music and anyone associated with it. There was also the growing competition between R&B originals and their whitewashed covers. Freed's own Moonglows had one of their hits, entitled Sincerely, covered by the McGuire sisters. Jackson points out that, Listed as co-writer of the song, Freed had everything to gain by the pop success of the McGuire sisters' version of Sincerely. Yet he loudly decried the covering practice. In Cleveland, as well as during his early years in New York, Freed played only original R&B recordings because he believed rhythm and blues music was honest. Freed continued to rail against white covers of R&B originals, and eventually, in August 1955, was able to get his station behind him when WINS announced that, In the interest of fairness to the original artist and label, 
the station would no longer play copies of original recordings. Jackson adds that station manager Bob Smith differentiated between copy records, note-for-note arrangements and stylistic phrasing of the singer, and legitimate cover records, which Smith said were an integral part of the record industry and completely ethical. This sentiment might remind some of you of the excerpt I read from Ruth Brown's interview in which she made some very similar points. That being said, this denouncing of white covers and fidelity to originals didn't give Freed any hesitation in grabbing songwriting credit, not only on that Moonglow song I mentioned earlier, but also, as many of you might remember, when Chess Records approached him in 1955 to offer him songwriting credit on a new release from up-and-comer Chuck Berry called Maybelline. Now, in Freed's defense, again, you'll also remember how I mentioned that payola was an accepted thing in the industry at this time. And one of the forms of bribery that often took place was this very thing, songwriting credit. So it's, it's a complicated issue involving a complicated guy. One more example to illustrate Freed's duality. Uh, the doo-wop group, The Four Fellows, initially had a hard time getting Freed to, to play any of their stuff on the air. And the reason for this was the owner of their record label refused to give Freed any inducements at all to play the song. Uh, you know, no bribery, no songwriter credits, no payola. However, they released a song in 1955 called Soldier Boy that finally got Freed's attention. Soldier Boy. And recognizing its commercial potential, he told the label owner that he would play it one time, and then if people requested it to be played more, that he would go ahead and give it more airtime. So, as anyone can tell you who's familiar with the music of the 1950s, Soldier Boy became a huge hit. Freed began to listen to their music from then on and really pay attention to them. And with or without inducements, he began to play their music. So he was he was sold on their sound, and that trumped his greed. And I'm going to read this quote from Jim McGowan, one of the singers in the, the Four Fellows. I found out that underneath it all, Freed was a hell of a lot more honest in his dealing with people than were some other disc jockeys. He gave you the professional respect and courtesy you deserve. So, like I said, he was a complicated guy. He was obviously out to make a buck, but there was still a part of him that was slightly more dedicated to the music than his wallet. Uh, now, Freed's move to New York would continue to further prove to be a mixed bag as he was sued by that aforementioned street performer Thomas Lewis Hardin, who also went by the moniker Moondog. And this ended with Hardin lining his pockets with just under $6,000 of Freed's money and Freed being forced to no longer go by Moondog. Hardin himself had briefly found work as a DJ, actually, only to be fired a few days later. And, and then after that, he began, he began dressing up in Viking garb, horned helmet and everything, and doing performances on the sidewalk outside the entrance of Carnegie Hall. Uh, in fact, on the day that his lawsuit went to court, he showed up in the courtroom wearing a monk's habit. Uh, in fact, one witness said he looked like Jesus Christ. The The fact that Hardin was also blind might have helped create sympathy for his case. Nevertheless, he obviously had, uh, he, he was obviously a mixture of, of drama and quirkiness. Um, now, to be fair, Hardin didn't have a completely unlegitimate case. He really had been going by the name Moondog much earlier than Freed. And there was an instance uh, years earlier in which Freed had even played one or two of Hardin's recordings on the air. Um, I like Jackson's account of the courtroom scene where Hardin sought to prove this point. The sightless street musician contended that Freed stole his Moondog nickname after hearing one of Hardin's recordings. Hardin also accused Freed of playing the street musician's other compositions, including one called Snake Time Music. The robed Viking poet was prepared to offer samples of his musical compositions as evidence. The judge, Justice Walter, 
reluctantly agreed to listen. A portable phonograph was brought into the courtroom, and when Howl of the Timberwolf and Moondog Symphony, two hardened recordings, were played, one reporter described the noise emanating from the phonograph as a mixture of jungle sounds and Chinese harmonies, complete with clattering chopsticks in the background. As the din echoed through the courtroom, Justice Walter buried his face in a handkerchief. Hardin asked for $100,000, and he was awarded 5700 But Freed found no pleasure in paying so much less than what Hardin was suing for, because paying money at all wasn't even what he was upset about. He was upset about being forced to abandon his entire brand. He was the Moondog. His followers were the Moondoggers. The first band he'd begun managing was called the Moonglows. He wanted to fight the court decision, but WINS just wanted to move on, and they convinced him to do the same. But this would turn out to be a crucial moment in rock history. Jackson describes the meeting in which they were trying to come up with a new name for Freed's show as thus. Freed then huddled at WINS with his producer, Johnny Brantley and Jack Hook, uncertain of what to call his now moondogless radio program. I think I'm just going to call it the rock and roll party, said the DJ. Hook cautioned Freed that the phrase rock and roll was widely considered a black euphemism for sexual intercourse. I don't give a shit, exclaimed the DJ. That's what I'm going to call the show. So the very phrase he'd been using to describe the music he played and had even begun to use loosely as a noun for that music was now officially becoming the name of his show and as you know, history will show, thus solidifying its status as the name of a whole new genre. Now what's interesting is there are later statements from Freed uh, saying that he wasn't trying to name the music when he named his show Rock and Roll Party. You know, he claimed he was just trying to name his show and that was it. And to be fair, I mean, you know, has anyone ever gotten out of bed in the morning with the intention of naming an entirely new genre of music and successfully pulled it off? You know, music movements and their names are, are generally something that just sort of happens. It's, it's one of those grassroots phenomena that are difficult to contrive. Although we will discuss at various points in this podcast examples of times in which that very thing was attempted. However, there are other events that seem to contradict Freed's claim and, and seem to indicate that his intentions with the term rock and roll may have been more prescient than he would later let on, which is kind of interesting considering his, his ego. Um, I'm going to quote from Big Beat Heat again, which shares this anecdote that also makes it seem like Alan Freed was trying to name a new genre. The night of Justice Walter's decision that barred Alan Freed from continuing as Moondog, the disc jockey and a companion drank at PJ Moriarty's, a local Manhattan saloon on 51st Street. The two spoke of Freed's and WINS's intent to emphasize rock and roll in the wake of the DJ's lost nickname. Sometime between drinks, they decided to copyright the phrase rock and roll. Such a copyright would protect Freed from further courtroom shenanigans concerning his radio program's new name, the Rock and Roll Party. But there was another motive involved in the copyright decision. Rhythm and Blues, the music Alan Freed now called Rock and Roll, was entering a new era. Whoever held the copyright on the phrase Rock and Roll would stand to collect royalties each time the phrase was used. Now I have to insert, it's kind of not surprising that they came up with this idea while drinking. <laughs> it just seems like a a drunken conversation kind of thing like what if we copyrighted the the word pants and every time somebody says pants they have to pay us a nickel anyway moving on uh thus in his efforts at rebranding himself after losing his moondog moniker freed was using it as an opportunity to rebrand the music as well further integrating himself as a synonymous entity with that music well 
of course, you know, also further enriching himself. One of the steps he took in this direction was music publishing. Fried would go on to be a co-founder of music publisher Sieg Music, along with Lou Platt, W-I-N-S, and another guy named Morris Levy. Now, a random side story about Morris Levy. He actually did time in juvenile hall as a kid because he assaulted one of his school teachers by pulling off her wig, dumping ink on her head, and then replacing the wig. I've been a bad boy. I always thought I had it rough in, in my time teaching middle school, but that's uh, never quite had that happen. Also, I don't wear a wig. Anyway, the idea was that this music publishing firm would help them capitalize on the rock and roll name. All of Freed's shows would now incorporate the new term. The first of these was his first live New York show that he called the Rock and Roll Jubilee Ball. So he was still naming his shows after dances. He also started getting his fan base in on the rebranding. So quoting from Jackson's book, As part of the show's promotion, Freed mailed to members of his what were now called Rock and Roll Fan Clubs, of which there were hundreds, a printed advertisement and mail order ticket coupon for the upcoming show. Addressed to Dear Fellow Rock and Roller, the letter referred to the rhythm and blues talent scheduled to perform as sensational rock and roll artists. Altogether, the phrase rock and roll was mentioned 10 times in the one-page letter. Rhythm and blues was not mentioned at all. So it's kind of interesting that in a bid almost for self-preservation through rebranding, Alan Freed was bringing the whole industry with him. It would, of course, take time for his rebranding efforts to really take hold outside his immediate circles. As Jackson points out, both Variety and Billboard magazines touted the DJ's rock and roll ball, and although both publications accepted Freed's description of the dance, neither sanctioned rock and roll as a particular musical genre. Variety referred to the dance as a rhythm and blues bash, while Billboard continued to describe Freed as a key R&B DJ. The rock and roll ball was huge and was jam-packed with tons of big-name artists, along with not so big names like Freed's Moonglows, who had yet to put out a decent single that would chart well. Overall, though, it was a smash success, like all his shows tended to be. But here's where Jackson makes a crucial point. What made the DJ's dance a milestone in the acceptance of rock and roll was the racial composition of the audience, which was estimated to have been half white, the first such documented ratio. So his previous shows had also had some race mixing, um, Except, uh, in, of course, in the, the Deep South, that's where it was still not allowed. And, and even um, what's interesting in, in Bill Haley Jr.'s book about his dad, Bill Haley, uh, he even talks about um, some accounts where, where, where Bill Haley, there's, there's some interesting stories of, of when they were doing their shows in the South. And because a black man couldn't be on the stage at the same time as a white man, it made for kind of a, an interesting tension um, as the artists were kind of coming and going on stage and... You had to like kind of arrange things just right so there was never a time where you had both races on the stage at the same time. It's crazy. Um, super interesting. I, I can't recommend that book enough. But anyway, um, like I said, you know, his, his previous shows had also had some race mixing, but they were still by and large predominantly composed of black audience members. Now that this one was balanced half and half showed that this music really was reaching mainstream America. And this, of course, only emboldened Freed in his new rebranding efforts with the phrase rock and roll. While everywhere else, publications and news outlets still referred to the music as rhythm and blues, 
though some would bend a little and classify it as white rhythm and blues when discussing artists like Bill Haley, Freed would continue to double down on, as Jackson put it, his pet phrase. In fact, I, I love this anecdote that Jackson shares on this topic. When Billboard continued to classify Freed as a rhythm and blues DJ, Freed stepped up his on-the-air hype of what he called rock and roll records with the big beat in popular music today. And then Jackson quotes Freed in his show. Hello, everybody. Yours truly, Alan Freed, the old king of the rock and rollers, all ready for another big night of rockin' and rollin'. Let her go. Welcome to rock and roll party number one. Then Jackson points out how as Freed's theme began, he continued speaking over the music. And then quoting Freed again. Yeah, top 25 rock and roll favorites, everybody. According to your mail requests, your telegrams, and your purchases all over the rock and roll kingdom. And we're going to get off and running. Warp up. Red Prysock on Mercury. Rock and roll. And then after the end of the song, Freed said, Oh boy, that's a great one. And a wonderful guy. Red Prysock on Mercury and rock and roll. And that's exactly what we're going to do. And then I, I love what Jackson says next. In the span of less than four minutes, with half that time taken up by Prysock's record, Freed managed to utter his pet phrase in one form or another nine times. W-I-N-S? Often the rock and roll DJ would not even bother to identify his station for 30 minute stretches or more. Freed was now selling rock and roll and WINS simply happened to be the DJ's outlet for doing so at the moment. Freed's shows were becoming bigger and bigger and he was able to secure nicer and nicer venues to house them. But this also ironically produced new obstacles. They began talks with the Paramount Theater chain to book their next rock and roll show at Manhattan's famed Paramount Theater on Broadway near Times Square. But, as Jackson put it, there were problems. Paramount, concerned with the lingering racial stigma of the music, was cool to their proposal. Mmm, eat glass! Freed's manager, Morris Levy, the wig and ink guy I told you about earlier, was charged with making the deal happen. A compromise was struck and, instead of Manhattan, the site of Freed's first theater engagement would be Brooklyn. This arrangement would enable Paramount to keep the integrated crowds away from Times Square. That issue right there, that rock and roll crowds were racially integrated rather than segregated, would be one of the sticking points for many Americans in their disapproval of the music. Even though Brown v. Board of Education had taken place a year earlier, uh, you know, ending state-sanctioned segregation of public schools, society's overall acceptance of integration was yet to take place. Nevertheless, for now, it was still seen uh, largely as a black music that happened to have a few white people interested in it. You know, this is kind of like the, the general view of it. The, the larger public wasn't aware yet that these rock concerts were now consistently sporting equal numbers of whites and blacks, which was likely part of Paramount Theater's desire to shuffle the show to somewhere a little less conspicuous where, hopefully, not too many major news outlets would notice all the race mingling going on. Now, this was just kicking the can down the road, of course. Rock was becoming too big to ignore. In fact, as Jackson points out, New York-area teenagers could not get enough of Freed's rock and roll. His week-long Brooklyn Paramount run drew 97,000 people and produced a box office gross of $107,000 that shattered the theater's all-time house record set in 1932. What's funny is, Variety magazine described Freed's opening night audience as dancing in the aisles, clapping in time with the music, and letting out shrieks at a lively riff or just the announcement of an upcoming performer. But Jackson includes this great tidbit of info from the Brooklyn Paramount manager, Gene Pleshett, who had also worked at Manhattan's Paramount during the big band era, and said Benny Goodman's and Frank Sinatra's swing audiences were wilders than Freed's. So, uh, so much for accusations that rock music made teens crazier than any other music before it. Of course, on the flip side, 
never underestimate the power of big band music. That stuff was rock and roll before there was any rock and roll. Nevertheless, the music would be associated, of course, with bad behavior. For instance, Jackson shares this story. Unfortunately, following one of Freed's Paramount shows that April, a rowdy group of teenagers created a disturbance in a Brooklyn subway car. Despite the fact that it was never proven that the youths involved in the widely publicized incident even attended Freed's show, many outraged New Yorkers pointed to the DJ and to rock and roll as the cause of the disturbance. So once again, bad stuff happens, and they're laying the blame at the feet of Rock and Alan Freed. But then this is where um, Jackson actually echoes um, what I've said earlier in this episode. The accusations that Freed promoted teenage violence would intensify as his own stature as rock and roll's leading proponent steadily increased. Freed would be unsuccessful in overcoming the stigma his critics imposed upon him, and this negative image would facilitate his ruin. Freed himself would acknowledge in one public statement that he made that one of the reasons rock music was so popular was that it represented a safe form of rebellion against authority. The thing to remember is, this is 1955. This is the year that Blackboard Jungle would be released, blowing up the career of Bill Haley and his Comets as well as Rebel Without a Cause, which would immortalize James Dean as an icon of teen rebellion. And speaking of Blackboard Jungle, this would also demonstrate to the world the potential for using rock music in movies. And more importantly, Alan Freed would notice that potential as well. And that's our setup for next episode. Next episode, we are going to discuss three movies produced by Alan Freed. He actually produced five rock-themed movies, all of which were rock propaganda. Rockaganda? No, that sounds stupid. Uh, that were aimed at countering the increasing social outcry against rock music. It's mostly going to be kind of a fun, campy summary and review of the movies. Um, not super intense, serious, highbrow type stuff. Probably a pretty short episode. It's really a final look at the social setting of rock music's birth before we continue to talk about... Uh, well, actually, we'll be, we'll be visiting Pat Boone next. And then... Um, very soon after that, finally getting to the king himself, Elvis Presley. So, until next time, keep it deep. Freed continued to rail against R&B covers. Oh my gosh. Freed continued to rail against white covers of R&B originals. And eventually, in that, uh, <laughs> this sentiment might remind some of you of that excerpt I read from Ruth Brown's interview. This sentiment right. This sentiment right. Oh my gosh, this sentiment might remind you uh, some. <laughs> this sentiment might remind some of you that, of that excerpt that I can't talk right now. Blah, 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 blah.